0: Thank you for joining us today. At ResLife, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. Amen. Amen. Well, look, I've got limited time and I want to get right to my assignment. Uh, it's in Isaiah chapter six. And I don't want to read the entire verse, a uh, 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 passage from one through eight, But you all are familiar with it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. I want to focus on that eighth verse. It says, also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And I want to talk to you for a few minutes from this subject. Answer the call. Answer the call. Now, I really believe that the Holy Spirit has ordained this message for this moment and what I'm about to say to you right now. Some of you sitting in this room, you've been struggling with something God has called you to do or that you think God has called you to do. But because of your flesh and because of your own sense of inadequacy, you are resisting and struggling and, and grappling. Uh, and I'm here to tell you today that you've got to answer the call. You can't do what God has called you to do out of your own strength anyway. That's not how it's done. It is Christ working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And you've got to let go and let him have his way with you. Uh, If you keep trying to figure out how you're going to do it in your own strength, it will never get done. So I want to encourage you to answer the call that God has on your life. Every one of us has a calling on our lives, a calling within the calling. You're called out of darkness into his marvelous light, but you're called by God with a specific and unique purpose and plan because of how he designed you. I've often said, you are not who you are because of your genetic background. Your genetic background is what it is because of who God made you to be, because he ordained you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 2 says, you are his workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus beforehand that you should walk in them. And that word workmanship is the word poema in the Greek. Our word poem comes from it. You are God's lyric. You are God's song. You are God's music to a lost and dying world. And the question for you is, Lord, what do you want to sing? What do you want to say through me? Every one of us has a purpose. Every one of us is part of God's plan, but it's up to you to answer the call. Now, I want to take you to Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Very familiar passage of scripture, and I I believe I'm in in the right crowd. I believe that the Bible is the word of God from the very first word of Genesis to the last word of Revelation. Uh, It is the inerrant, infallible word of the living God. And uh, therefore, I believe this verse, but I think, you know, as God's dealt with me over the years and showed me certain scriptures and says, son, all my children read that verse, but very few believe it. Here's what it says. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Now, if you really believe that, if you really believe that, then you know that you are not here by accident. I understand there are people around the world watching right now, wherever you are, but for us, particularly as Americans, we are not here by accident. And look, this, this can be difficult for people to fully grasp because there are Irish people of Irish descent who think you're here because of potato famine, or you're here because the British oppressed your ancestors, and they, they tried to escape, or some of the descendants Uh, I'm told that Jeannie's got uh, ancestors from the Mayflower, that we're here because of religious oppression in Great Britain and and our ancestors escaped to get here. Or if you're Italian or German, you're here because of pogroms that were happening in your own uh, ancestral land that caused your relatives to to leave there, caused your ancestors to leave there and come here. Or or in my case, uh, I'm a descendant of slaves and sharecroppers, Gabriel and Eliza Jackson were slaves in Orange County, Virginia. That's where my grandfather was born. As in my case, well, now you're here because your ancestors were brought here by slavery. But if you believe this verse, it says we are here because God determined our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwellings. And I'll tell you something. I choose to believe the word of God and not the 1619 project. I choose to believe the word of God and not Black Lives Matter. I choose to believe the word of God and not what the mainstream media says. The devil will let you have your heart filled with bitterness and and, and anger and hatred over things that have happened in the past. Instead of you realizing what God wants is not you obsessing over what someone has done to you or to your ancestors in the past. He wants you to obsess over what he wants to do with you now and in the future. That should be our preoccupation. Lord, what do you want of me? Here I am. You are here by God's appointment, every single one of us. And it's up to us to answer the call. It's up to us to make up our minds that we're going to be available for whatever God wants to do with us. Because we're not here by accident. Jesus inaugurated his calling down in Nazareth when he preached out of Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. He said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to preach the acceptable year of the Lord in the day of vengeance of our God, to appoint unto all them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And at that verse, at the end of that third verse, the script flips. And instead of him talking about his calling and his anointing, he starts talking about what those trees of righteousness are supposed to be doing. He says, and they, and they will rebuild the old ruins. And they will raise up the former desolations. And they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. God expects us to do some rebuilding. God expects us to do some raising up. And God expects us to do some repairing. You know, when people tell me, as I often hear, America's being judged by God. America is on its way down because America's displeased God. And, and there's plenty that's going on in our country to displease God. There's no question about that. But I'm convinced of this that if God was willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah, if Abraham could find just 10 righteous, In those wicked cities, you can't tell me that with the millions praying across this country for our nation, that God is not going to have mercy and show grace to the United States of America. Because you're here and I'm here, God is showing mercy to our country, and I really believe that that grace is going to win out over all the forces of darkness that are trying to drag us into the muck and the mire. We've got to do some rebuilding. You know, I know that the world would convince us that the biggest problem America faces is racial. It's not. It is not. It is simply not. In fact, I'm going to say something that will shock you, but if you will receive it in the spirit, it will hit you like revelation if you will let it. America does not have a racial problem. America's never had a racial problem. America has a sin problem. You see, my brothers and sisters, the problem is not the skin, it's the sin. Human beings have been subjugating each other since time immemorial. And and skin color has nothing to do with it. Up until the time that human beings began to travel the world, primarily by ship, that started in about the 15th century, accelerated in the 15th and 16th centuries, All the slavery and all the subjugation was homogeneous. Europeans enslaving other Europeans, Africans enslaving other Africans, Asians enslaving other Asians, because that was all they could find. And they always came up with justifications for doing so. You know, the British said things about the Irish that were just unbelievable. You know, they called them monkeys and and said they were sexually perverse and and that they were lazy and that they were no good and, and that they deserved to be enslaved. They deserved to be subjugated. In fact, the plantation was not invented in America or in, the South, in South America or in the West Indies. The plantation was invented by Great Britain to subjugate the Irish. And sure, surely you've, you, you saw Spartacus, or am I dating myself? I mean, if anybody saw Spartacus, remember Spartacus was a rebellion by slaves, European slaves who were subjugated by the Romans, who rose up and fought against their Roman slave masters, and they were all Europeans. In fact, you may never have heard this because they won't teach this in most of our colleges and universities now. But the, fa- the reality is that because of the Barbary pirates and the North African Muslims, 1.5 million Europeans were enslaved in Africa before the Atlantic slave trade started. Think about that one. In fact, when the Portuguese arrived in Africa in the late 1400s, they were introduced to the slave trade by North african muslims who told them that sub-saharan africans the dark-skinned africans in the south made good slaves and that they were easier to mine than gold it was not europeans that introduced slavery it was africans that introduced slavery to europeans the african slave trade that is oh you're awfully quiet in here but it's still the truth And I'm not saying that to justify anything. I'm saying it to simply point out that it's not the skin, it's the sin. These things, this is what human beings have done for each other and to each other. In fact, I'm convinced of this. If God were to wave his hand over the whole earth right now and made every single one of us exactly the same complexion, exactly the same texture hair, and he left one difference, some brown eyes, some blue eyes, some hazel eyes, some green eyes, some gray eyes, it wouldn't be long before the hazel-eyed folks would be over in their corner saying, did you see the way those brown-eyed folks looked at that? You know, I'll tell you something, they don't like us. They think they're better than us. We need to start the hazel-eyed movement to throw off the oppression because it's just what human beings do to one another. And it's, the, the problem has been sin and the race is just another patina, just another justification of doing what human beings have always done. So this pernicious notion that somehow Europeans coming to this continent turned a paradise into a scourge and, and started this terrible thing. Listen, I mean no disrespect to Native Americans, but before Europeans ever got here, Native Americans were fighting each other, subjugating each other, and cannibalizing each other in some cases so please don't tell me they were they were living an idyllic life and the europeans came along and messed it all up the world was a wonderful place and along came the united states of america and messed it up the fact of the matter is the world was a horrible place of conquest and subjugation and slavery, and when America came along, it introduced a lofty concept that the world had never heard before. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's my country. That's the nation that I love. And I know people say, yeah, but Bishop Jackson, America hasn't lived up to that. Oh, like you've lived up to every principle you've ever enunciated. I mean, why is it we're so easy? It is so easy for us to judge the founding fathers in a way that we would never want to be judged ourselves. I say uh, slavery existed for at least 150 years before George Washington was born. I'm talking about the African slave trade. 150 years before George Washington was even born, the father of our country. He inherited slaves when he was 10 years old, 11 slaves when he was 10 years old when his father died. And I say, it's as if we want him to say at 10 years old, you know, Mom, I've been thinking about the slavery thing, and uh, I think this ought to end. I mean, he was born into it. We ought to, instead of being angry and wanting to tear their statues down, we ought to be commending them that they were able to transcend it. There's not a founding father who didn't in one way or another denounce slavery before he died. And George Washington, I'm sure you all know the history, he got rid of every slave he had and provided for their sustenance with his own wealth after he passed away. And the reluctance some of them had was, what will they do if we release them? Because, of course, we were in an environment in which everybody had been taught at that point that they can't fend for themselves. And yet, this is the country where the great grandson of slaves can run for lieutenant governor of Virginia, graduate from Harvard Law School, serve in the United States Marine Corps, and declare that I am free. So we've got some rebuilding to do with it. The biggest problem is not race, what is it? The breakdown of the family. In 1950, 13% of black children, for example, were born out of wedlock. 13%. This year, 75% of black children are born out of wedlock. In 1950, 3% of children of European background ancestry were born out of wedlock. Today, It's a third to 40 percent, depending on what part of the country you're in. We're watching the family disintegrate before our very eyes. I was born into a broken home, raised in foster care until the age of 10 years old. And by the time I was 10, I was running the streets of the city of Chester, Pennsylvania. I was in a gang. We were having uh, gang fights. One of my friends, Herman Cooper, I don't know where he is today, but Herman Cooper ended up killing another friend and got got life in prison for it. We were admiring the guys who had been to prison and were strutting up and down the street having done time in the penitentiary. We thought they they were the ones to look up to. And then at the age of 10 years old, standing on a street corner in Chester, Pennsylvania, with my gang around me, my father pulled up pointed his finger at me and told me, come. And I went to his car because I knew who my father was. I wasn't living with either one of them, my mother or my father. They weren't raising me, but I, I visited frequently with my father, not so much with my mother because she was off doing other things. But my father said, you always say you want to come live with me. Do you still want to live with me? I said, yeah, dad, sure. He took me to the foster home I was living in and my foster mother, Rebecca Molette, He called her Miss Beck, my middle daughter's named after her. I was her baby. She had had me since I was 14 months old. And he told her, Miss Beck, I've got to take my son to live with me because if I don't, we're going to lose him. She became hysterical. I mean, she wept and cried and said, you can't do that because, you know, the courts and this and that and the other. And my father said, I never released my son to anybody. He said, and if I don't take him now, he said, we may not, it may be too late. And I walked out the door with my father that very day, and my life changed immediately because my father took me to live with him and sat me down and said to me, son, every day with me can be like a day of heaven on earth, or every day I will tear you behind all to pieces. It's up to you. No more hanging out with the gang. No more running the streets. I now have to study. I went from being an almost failed student in fifth grade, almost kept back, to being an A student in sixth grade. That's how dramatic the change was. If you ask me how did I end up in Harvard Law School, the grace of God and a father who never allowed me to make excuses for myself. My father used to say to me, son, there will be obstacles in life. I expect you to go over them, around them, under them, or through them. But don't let anybody stop you from doing something with your life. It's up to you what you do. And don't come back to me with excuses. Now, you all forgive me for just getting raw about this. But my father, with a sixth-grade education, a third-class welder in Sonship Building and Dry Dock Company, who was born in 1915, grew up under far worse circumstances than anybody alive today knows, said to me, son, I expect you to make something of yourself. And if you don't, if you end up running around here, going to jail and doing all kinds of crazy stuff— Don't even call on me. Because that's not what I'm raising you to do. I'm raising you to do something with your life. And he never said to me, son, I wish you could do something with your life. But you know, the white man just won't let you. You know what? That's the message that a lot of young people are hearing today. My father never said to me, son, you, you know, you could make something of yourself, but, you know, there's systemic racism. And, you know, I wish you could, son, but I'm just going to pat you on the head and you'll probably end up in jail or on drugs or, or, or in the streets, but we can't help it because, after all, we're living in America, and what, what can a black man do? I never heard that garbage out of my father's mouth. My father taught me, son, nobody owes you anything. It's up to you to work for what you want and strive for what you want. And my father used to say this, and you live in the wealthiest nation on earth. You go out there and get your part and you you reach for the stars. And if you don't land in the stars, you'll land on the moon. But I'll tell you what, you'll get a lot further than if you don't reach at all. Now go out there and make something of yourself. And instead, what we're hearing today is this nonsense. Look, there's not a person in this nation, nobody, who can't get up in the morning and make up your mind what you want to do with that day, good or bad. I used to pastor in Boston, and we would work with these little little wannabe gang members, and, and I would have guys, literally folks, literally say to me, well, you know, we have to deal drugs because... They won't let us do anything else. And I said, who's they? And it was the white man. And I'd say, well, so explain to me how that happens. Does he meet you coming out of school and walk you home and go in the house with you? And when you try to open a book to do homework, he slams the book closed and then grab you by the hand and take you out in the streets and tell you to go do this? Does he tell you, no, 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 don't look for a part-time job. No, no, go out and deal drugs. Like, Explain to me how it works. And they looked at me like I had two heads. Because, that, because that, that, that excuse doesn't make any sense. But it's been bought into, and folks, it is nothing but rank Marxism. Because what it does is it substitutes race for class and tries to convince us that there are two groups of people in the world, people of color And forgive me, but I guess people without color, although I've never met any of those folks. Everybody I've I've, I've ever met has color. And, you know, they try to convince you that the aboriginal child growing up in the Amazon rainforest somehow has something in common with the kid who's growing up in the streets of Chicago because they're both people of color. That whole construct is meant to do nothing but divide us but to make us think it's an us-against-them situation. And that's not the issue. The issue is that children need to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord by a mother and father who care about them and instill in them the inspiration and the desire and the commitment and the determination to do something with their lives and to take advantage of the great opportunities that there are in the United States of America. You know, I've had people say to me, well, wait a minute. Haven't you been a victim of racism? And I say, the closest I've ever come, first of all, I'm, not, I'm nobody's victim. I refuse to be a victim. I, listen, I heard somebody say, separate fire coming in. Look, I'm a Marine. You don't victimize me. We don't, we don't, we don't play the victim game. You know, we, what we do is we take that hill. We don't sit back and say, oh, woe is me. I wish I could, but the enemy won't let me. We go for it. I, taught, I was taught that by my father and that was drilled in me by my drill instructors and, and others in the Marine Corps. But, 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 but folks, it, it is up to us to raise up people who understand the great opportunity they've been given and will take advantage of it. Look, children with fatherless homes, and that's the big problem with the breakdown of our families, five times more likely to commit suicide, 10 times more likely to abuse drugs, 20 times more likely to suffer mental illness, 20 times more likely to do hard prison time and 14 times more likely to commit rape or murder. Fatherless homes. No mother and father. And then you've got the added problem of people running around saying, well, wait a minute. There's no such thing as a man or a woman. Now, you know, you've got to have BBs for brains to believe that. But there's a lot of people who believe that mess. And you know, they're even saying, don't put your child's gender on the birth certificate. That's oppression. That's discrimination. You don't know whether it's a boy or a girl. I've got one son, a junior. I said when he was born, I lifted him up. It's a boy. <laughs> I didn't have to question that. It was obvious. He's known that every day of his life. My friends, we, we've got to rebuild the family. We, we've got to reinstill in people the sense of values and determination and, and healthy ideals that will allow them to achieve things in life. And by short circuiting people and telling them that the America's Inherently socially unjust, and you can't do this and you can't do that because they won't let you. If you're a woman, you can't. If you're black, you can't. If you're brown, you can't. And all of that nonsense, all that does is debilitate people before they even start. And besides that, when I hear Christians talk that way, it gets me particularly incensed because I say, Now, wait a minute, are you the same person who said, God opens doors and no man can close them? Well, which is it? If God opens doors and no man can close them, I don't see a footnote for an exception. I believe this. Whatever God has for me, God has for me, and all the devils in hell can't stop me from fulfilling my destiny in Christ Jesus. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You can't keep me down because I always triumph in Christ Jesus. So I was one of those kids. We got to rebuild the family. Had it not been for my daddy, I don't know where I would have been. And then secondly, we've got to raise up the truth. I mean, we're living in this world now. I just gave you an example of it where people want to make a lie the truth because they say, well, there's no such thing as truth. And then, you know, when, when, by the way, the next time somebody says, well, you know, there's no such thing as absolute truth. You say, so then what you just said to me is not true. <laughs> I mean, you can't even have a conversation on that basis. So so Jesus made clear there is truth. Pilate said to him, are you a king? Jesus said, for this cause I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. All who are of the truth, hear my voice. And Jesus said his word is truth, that heaven and earth will pass away. His word will never pass away. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. There is such a thing as truth and people want to somehow make moral and spiritual and cultural relativism rule the day so that the moment you say, no, 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 this is true and that is not, oh, you're a bigot. You're a hater. You're a discriminator. You know what? We love people, and I mean that. I love people. I, I don't care. I love you. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your your presumed sexual orientation is. I love you because I know God loves you. But loving you doesn't mean I've got to compromise the truth. I've got to speak the truth in love. And the truth of the matter is they're not 65 or 125 or 155 or a thousand genders. There's only two. There's male and there's female. That's it and that's all because that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, in the beginning, God made them male and female. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And somebody will say to you, that's bigoted talk. No, that's biblical talk. And we need to come back to the word of God instead of all of these ideas that are being concocted that you all got to bow to or your persona non grata. You're to be marginalized. You're to be shut up and shut down because you won't go along. No, we're not supposed to go along. Look, any dead fish can flow with the current. It takes a live salmon to swim upstream. We're supposed to be live salmon swimming upstream, not dead fish going with the current. There is such a thing as truth. Jesus is indeed the truth. And this idea a man, a a child doesn't need a mother and a father, two men are just as good. Two women are just as good. They're just as well off in a homosexual home as they are. In fact, some would argue they're better off than they are in a heterosexual home. That's a lie. That's a lie. Children need a mother and a father. And what God has gifted each to bring to that relationship of raising those children, they need both in the home to help them to become everything that God intended them to become. And look, I don't care what the Supreme Court says, I don't care what legislators say, a marriage is a union between one man and one woman in the bonds of holy matrimony. That's it, that's all there is. Nothing else is a marriage. I don't care what anybody else says. And the world would have you think that the truth is that you are defined by your race, your complexion, your ancestral heritage. That's a lie. You know what? You know, God spoke to me. God said, anybody who sees the world through a racial lens is a racist. Did you hear what I just said? Anybody, I don't care what the color of their skin is, if they see the world through a racial lens, they are a racist. Well, Bishop, how are we supposed to see the world? Through a biblical lens. Through a biblical lens, and God said in the word of God, when Samuel thought that the biggest, baddest thing in Jesse's household had to be the next king, God said, I don't look the way you look. I don't look at the outward physical appearance. I look on the heart. And the word of God says in 2 Corinthians five sixteen. we know verse 17, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation, but what about verse 16? Henceforth know we no man according to the flesh. While we have known Christ according to the flesh, henceforth know we him that way anymore. We're not supposed to be looking at the outward appearance. Dr. King was really quoting a biblical principle when he said, I look for the day when my children will no longer be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's a biblical principle. How are you going to stand before God? If that's your identity, when you leave this earth... When you drop this robe of flesh and you stand before God as a disembodied spirit without this skin and this complexion, what are you going to do? Say, Lord, you understand, I'm. That's not who you are. The Bible says he's the father of spirits. You are spirit in essence. And we're letting people convince us that the most important thing about us is our complexion. Every time I hear this talk about brown people and black people. and That's not the way we Christians ought to think. We ought to think the way God wants us to think. That's the truth of the matter. That's our eternal destiny. Our eternal destiny. You think there's going to be a black heaven and a white heaven? You think God's going to segregate us on some level? God made us different to enhance each other, not to fight each other. And we in the church of all people ought to know better than all of these denominational and racial divisions that we've allowed creep into the church, the antebellum South racialized Christianity. Now we've got modern preachers going to these cemeteries, seminaries, and, and they, they're racializing Christianity as well. It's the black church and the white church. There's no such thing in the kingdom of God. There's just the church. Look, if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, if you believe that he rose on the third day to be your king, your savior, your Lord, if you believe that he is God come in the flesh, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are my brother. You are my sister. I don't care what your background is. I don't care where you came from. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is in all and over all and through all, and that's the reality for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one King, and we are following Him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, look, in order to answer the call, you've got to know who you are in Christ Jesus. I was not saved when I attended Harvard Law School. Harvard Law School didn't save me. But my father, who raised me and who I just I, I just idolized my daddy, because I, I understood as I got older that he saved me from a horrible fate because I saw what happened to all my friends who didn't, get the same kind of guidance that I ended up getting. And I was there working at Morgan Lewis and Bacchius, the law firm in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, stayed with my dad that summer while I was working there as an intern. And before I left, my father had gotten saved a couple of years earlier. And he said to me, knowing that he had an unsaved son now, and he was saved, said to me, son, you know what I'm doing? I said, what? He said, I'm, I'm reading the Bible from cover to cover. I said, really? He said, yes. He said, I, he said, it's so exciting. And I thought to myself, oh, well, that's interesting. That's nice. Okay, have at it. And then on my way home, literally, I remember as I was driving home, thinking about I'm going back now for my second year in Harvard Law School, thinking to myself, you know, actually, I shouldn't dismiss that because I'm trying to read the great books the Bible is one of the great books, and, and, you know, I should know something about the Bible. I probably ought to do that myself. So, you know, at cocktail parties, it might come up between sips of white wine, and I want to be able to comment intelligently on it, like I should as a good Harvard intellectual. That's what I'm thinking. The Holy Ghost has something else in mind. I got home in September of 1976, to back to our little apartment, and began reading the Bible from cover to cover, and, and folks... Man, you'll understand this. I had a lovely, I've been married for 50 years, had a lovely church-going wife. And my wife would walk in the door from church on Sunday morning. I'd be sitting in the living room with my feet propped up on the coffee table with a beer in my hand. And when she walked walk in, I'd look at her and sneer and say, how much of my money did you give that preacher today? And my wife would look at me, and just shake her head, poor thing, eat demon-possessed right up to the eyeballs. I mean... I started reading the Bible, and I came under conviction. I didn't understand it then, but I came to David because I thought church wasn't for guys, really. But I came to David, a man's man, a man that I thought, wow, man, this guy's tough. This guy's strong. This guy's courageous. And yet he would talk about God like he was in love with him. Oh, God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My Soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you've been my help. Therefore, under the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. And I began to say, what was it that made this man talk to God and talk about God that way? I'd gone to church when I was in foster care, but I never got saved. And my father didn't make me go to church. So I'd been out of church for 15 years. And I began to cry out to God, God, if you're real, literally, folks, if you're real, show me. If you're real, show me. My wife had no idea what I was doing. None of my friends did because this was a challenge, you see, between me and God. If you're the God that David talked about, surely you can show me whatever you showed him to make him feel and think and talk that way. My wife would be in the supermarket shopping and I'd be sitting outside studying sometime while she was inside. And and it would come to my mind and I would say, well, God, I'm waiting. And on December 22nd, 1976, there's an old song that says, I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. I mean, I woke up and it was as if God had invaded that room. I couldn't see him with my physical eyes, but he was there and I knew he was there. And the answer of whether God actually existed was forever answered for me. I hear people say I used to be a Christian. There's no use to be here. I, I, I know in whom I have believed because I woke up and that room was filled with the presence of God. I got up excited and went in and tapped my wife on the shoulder and I said, You, you know what? And my wife looked at me real sweet and said, What? I said, I think I'm saved. And my wife dropped the broom she was sweeping and said, What? I said, I don't know how to explain it. I said, But But God is doing something in my life. I said, where do you go to church? That was how divorced I was. I said, where do you go to church? I said, because I'm going to church with you on Sunday. My wife looked me up and down, took three steps back and said, you ain't going with me. (laughs) I'm serious, folks. She went in, called my mother-in-law, said, poor thing. I think Harvard Law School finally got to him. He got up this morning talking about Jesus. He's had a nervous breakdown. I hadn't lost my mind, I'd found it. Because that Sunday morning, I went to church by myself, sat up in the balcony, and when Reverend Brandon said, are there any here who would come and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I sprinted to the altar and lay there and wept as the load of sin was lifted off of me. I hadn't lost my mind, I'd found my mind. He's what I'd been looking for all of my life. I found out that he's sweet, I know. That he's sweet, I know. Storm clouds may rise and strong winds may blow. I'll tell the world wherever I go, I found a savior. And he's sweet, I know. I went back to Harvard Law School that January and my friends found out that something had happened to me. And by we walking down the hallway was like the parting of the Red Sea. They see me coming and they go every which way. Say, here he comes, get away from him. He's gonna talk to you about Jesus. And I would And I still will. You give me half a chance, cause he's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me. And I'm gonna tell the world about him anywhere and anytime I can. I found out, in spite of all my explorations looking for answers, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that only God can fill. And that Jesus is the only answer that can fill the human heart that he is everything the Bible says he is. There's only one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. Every eye will behold him, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. People tell me, no, wait a minute, Bishop Jackson, you ought to be loyal to your race. You should have been loyal to Barack Obama. i tell you in a heartbeat, I am loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who saved me, the one who raised me, the one who picked me up and turned me around and planted my feet on solid ground. I owe him everything. He died on the cross for my sins. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and the morning star. He's the rose of Sharon, the prince of peace, the king of kings, and the lord of lords. Come on, do I have a witness here? Do you know him? Has he been good to you? Hallelujah. So I'm not afraid of what anybody might say about me or do to me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though in host should encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. All the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple for in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle shall he hide me do I have a witness here hallelujah 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 what shall we then say to these things if God be for us who can be against us We need to join hands with one another across all racial and cultural lines and say, I'm not letting the world divide me against my brothers and my sisters in Christ. I'm not going to be divided by party. I'm not going to be divided by politics, but I'm going to unite with my brothers and sisters around the word of the living God. If God says it's right, it's right. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong. Hallelujah. Come on, can I say one more thing? And then I'm done. Don't you dare say, My way is hidden from the Lord, and the judgment that is due me is passed over from my God. Have you not known, have you not heard that the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not faint, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait, I said they that wait, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. I feel like preaching up in here, but I got to quit. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Do I have a witness here? Can you see ya? Can you see ya? See ya. He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet that the birds hush their singing and the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing and he walks with me and talks with me and tells me I'm his own and the joy we share as we tarry there none other has ever known. I've read the back of the book. That's why you can't stop me because I know we win. Hallelujah. We win victory. Victory, victory in Jesus. Woo! Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You're not here by accident. You're not in this time by accident. The question is not, does God want to do something with you? The question is whether you're going to answer the call. I know there are those watching online right now. You may have the same question in your mind, but Lord, what do you want of me? Seek his face, he'll show you. Make yourself available to him, he'll show you. Those of you here that the Lord laid on my heart to say that to at the opening, hear what God is saying. He had you here for this moment so you could hear. Move forward. Consult with your pastor. Pray with your wife or your husband. Do what God has for you to do. Don't lag. Don't get behind him. Don't get ahead of him. Get in rhythm with God. If you're here today or if you're watching online and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's what I'm preaching See, my my philosophy doesn't grow out of politics. My politics comes out of my biblical worldview. That's the way it ought to be for all Christians. I'm not going to be a part of anything that contradicts God's word. Period. call it what you, I don't call it Republican call it Democrat, call it a fraternity call it Mason, I don't care what it is if it is not in keeping with God's word, I'm out I'm out Jesus is the answer I want to lead you in a prayer if you've never accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the same thing that happened to me can happen to you He'll change your life forever I want you to stand on your feet, everyone, if you stand on your feet. Those of you who are, again, those of you who are watching online, you know, God can get you right where you are, wherever you are in the world. And the Word of God is relevant to you because wherever you are is where God puts you. And the question is, what are you going to do with where He has you? Let's pray. Pray this prayer with me. Repeat after me. Pray this out of your own heart. For those online, you may be praying this, some of you, for the first time in your life. But I guarantee you, if you confess with your heart the Lord Jesus, if confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe with your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins God in the flesh come to save me thank you Lord death could not hold him the grave could not keep him hell could not capture him he rose again on the third day with all authority in his hands I believe that. I receive that. I accept Him as my Lord and Savior. I renounce sin. I renounce the past. I have new life in Christ Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Baptize me in your power that I may live the way you want me to live and do what you want me to do I thank you so much that my identity now is in Christ Jesus it's not in my skin color it's not in my ancestry it's not in my genes it's in Christ Jesus I live for him I serve him I glorify him I seek to please him Help me to do it, Lord. Thank you for it. I praise you for it. In Jesus' name, give God praise and honor and glory. Hallelujah. We hope what you heard today has been encouraging and given you new insight into the word of God. We upload weekly, so join us again next time. Be blessed and enjoy your week.